Hi, I'm Anna Soper, and I'm a visual artist and librarian in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. This is Teen People, the podcast where I track down people who were in Teen People magazine and find out how life's going now. This is a companion episode to my conversation with Sarah Dytum, who is a feature writer and literary reviewer for the Sunday Times, and a regular contributor to Graydon Carter's airmail newsletter. Sarah was not in Teen People, but she read Teen People, and her new book explores the celebrity culture of the late 90s and early 2000s when Teen People was published. In the UK, Sarah's book is called Toxic, Women, Fame, and the Naughties, and is published by Fleet. In North America, the book is Toxic, Women, Fame, and the Tabloid 2000s, and is published by Abrams Press. In this episode, Sarah and I leaf through my collection of Teen People magazines in a series of outtakes I had to save for time. Do we have time for um, a few quotes from Teen People? Let's do it. Okay, super. So um, I have this... We discuss how Teen People covered Paris Hilton, Britney Spears, Aaliyah, Jennifer Aniston, and Lindsay Lohan. We also explore Sarah's writings on gender identity and feminism through a discussion of another famous woman found in Sarah's book, China, the Wrestler. We start off with Sarah's reflections on the overall theme of Toxic, the poisonous effects of fame. I think that's true. And I also think um, kind of if you wanted to get, you know, really expansive about the theme. I think fame itself is kind of an addiction. I've just been um, rereading Matthew Perry's autobiography after, you know, his extremely sad death. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, I think, probably one of the most interesting celebrity memoirs that I've ever read because it is absolutely relentlessly honest about how much he wanted to be famous and how much he thought that fame was going to solve some problem he had. And that for him goes kind of hand in hand with the drinking and the drugs problems that he had as well. And I think people who want to be famous, not people who do something that makes them famous, I think that's a really important distinction. And we can maybe talk about where I think different people in the book sort of fall along that thing. But I think people who desire fame often desire it because there is something missing in their life or something that they think being famous will fix for them in the same way that an addict is looking for a solution in the substance that they're pursuing and you know and fame doesn't fix things right fame just means that you have the same problems but with many more people looking at you while you're going through them Hmm. um but yeah I think addiction and fame even if they don't go directly hand in hand I do think they have certain things in common yeah there's that Britney Spears song lucky if there's nothing wrong with my life why do these tears come at night right which is well you know um again in retrospect extremely heartbreaking that you know to kind of like the levels of tragic irony in her singing that song at the point when she was singing it are manifold mm-hmm. um And in Amy Winehouse's case, there are kind of writings from when she's very young where she just says, I really want to be famous. And she's incredibly talented and the talent is going to make her famous. But the seeking of fame and the longing for that kind of massive mass acceptance, I think, puts her in a position where and even and then you add to this her like issues with addiction and eating disorders, which compound everything 
but I think it puts you in a position where it's really hard to protect yourself once you're in a position as a public figure where you really need to be very, very good at protecting yourself. Whereas I look at Paris Hilton's career and I think she has pursued fame really purposefully, but she's pursued it for a reason. I think she's seen fame as a means of, you know, essentially making money, right? Paris the brand is Paris Hilton's business and being famous is necessary to Paris the brand. But I don't feel like she has, I think she's got a skill for being famous, but I don't think that she has the same desire that you might, that you would find kind of when you dig into someone like Matthew Perry or Amy Winehouse. There's actually a, um, I read a quick article that teen people um, did with, with Paris Hilton in, uh, I'm just scrolling, looking for it here. In November, 2003, and Paris was said to, uh, to have watched home movies of herself for fun and that, <laughs> and, and that when she was preparing for an appearance on the David Letterman show, she planned yeah. to wear something sexy because he likes women who dress like that. There's a strong self-awareness there. She knows why she's famous and such uh, a strong self-awareness. Yeah. Sort of spin that around. It's a, it's a kind of, for her to say that when the sex tape is already out, is kind of a classic bit of Paris um, leaning into her image and yes. making, you know, just, just finding the joke and making it about herself before anyone else can get there. But yes. I also think, like, how incredibly prescient, because, you know, who among us has not spent way too much time scrolling through our own Instagram feed and, you know, analysing our own selfies? Yes. She was just, you know... She was just living the modern media environment before the rest of us got there. I asked Sarah whether she'd wished she could have read Britney Spears' memoir before Toxic was published, because both were published within days of each other. In her memoir, Britney revealed that she terminated a pregnancy during her relationship with Justin Timberlake. Following this revelation, there was intense speculation online that Britney's Every Time music video had been based on this unhappy experience. Coincidentally, Sarah writes about Every Time in Toxic, describing it as plaintive and harrowing. It's an incredible video, and the reason I wrote so much about it is because I knew from things that Britney had said in interviews and things that David LaChapelle, the um, director of the video, had said in interviews, that it had been like quite a significant creative endeavour for them. Um, LaChapelle has talked about how Britney gave like this, her key piece of creative direction was that she wanted to be dead in the video, which is like quite an intense, profound thing to you know turn up with for your pop music video um and also as a piece of video you know I think it's one of the great pop videos I think you know like it stands up against like David Finch's work with Madonna or Michelle Gondry's work I was watching um the come into my world video this morning because it's my favorite um but you know like it's one of the great pop videos you know stands up to Crimea River which is one of the great pop videos um and so I think, 
you know, the reason that it seems significant to me is because it was obviously significant to her and it obviously had these meanings attached to it. Um, and yeah, so there's this kind of quite, there's like this interesting strand of speculation about how much it relates to the abortion she writes about having in the book, um, which isn't something she says directly in the book, but you can definitely see how like the medicalized setting and the birth scene and that desire to be... I mean, it's a it's a really sad part of the book. She's talking about a really difficult, painful experience that she went that she went through, and which she looks back on with, you know, like some regret. It's not the choice that she says she would have made if she was making it entirely on her own terms. Um, and the I think the thing that you can kind of see in the video for every time is this desire to be reborn and to kind of come, you know. You know, she comes out of the water in the video of the new person. It's basically a baptism, a cleansing of your sins. And I think that's definitely there. Hmm. And then it's the ultimate irony that she was so constrained for so much of her adult life and has recently experienced a rebirth. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is a, a good way of looking at it. One of the saddest chapters in Sarah's book is the chapter on Aaliyah, who was a rising star at the time of her death in August 2001. In an awful twist, Aaliyah had recently been photographed for Teen People's October 2001 issue, which had just gone to print and would arrive on newsstands in September 2001. Here's Zena Burns, Teen People's Entertainment Director, from our interview in 2020. Oh my gosh, it was like a punch in the gut. Nobody, nobody who worked with Aaliyah thought she was anything other than tremendously talented, ahead of her time, complete sweetheart, total pro. And for, for her to be gone so early, so inexplicably, was, it, it would have boggled the mind at any point, but we had her on the cover of the issue that was coming out in a week or two anyway. And we just tried to strategize a, a plan for, hey, we have this issue coming out. How do we make this you know, a tribute and not, and not feel more of a tribute and not feel, um, you know, like we were trying to take advantage of something, you know, that, that issue was, was scheduled to come out. We, you know, lead times for these things are incredibly long, but, oh, that was tough. Oh, that was tough. I still feel so much for her family. As we browsed through my Teen Peoples on our call, I showed Sarah the October 2001 issue of Teen People and read her excerpts from Teen People's November 2001 issue, which eulogized Aaliyah for her fans. So um, I have this um, Mark McGrath and Aaliyah cover. This is the sexy list from uh, October 2001. So uh, this was on newsstands after Aaliyah's death. And I spoke with Teen People's Entertainment Director um, in 2020 about how they how they had to respond. I mean, it was too late to, to pull this, yeah. this cover. It was already out. Um, and um, at, at a later date, they had a tribute to Aaliyah, mm -hmm. um, which I, I looked up... Um, in a database, I don't actually have this this issue of Teen People from the November two thousand one issue. They had um, uh, an article called "Portrait of a Lady," and so they contacted some of Aaliyah's peers um, and friends in the industry to um, get their memories of Aaliyah. Yeah. 
Um, Angie Martinez, a rapper DJ at New York City's Hot 97 radio station, said she's going to be a legend for our generation, our Princess Diana, so graceful, so sweet, and so encouraging. Oh, wow. Also, Portrait of a Lady is such a, I mean, like, that is, that's everything about Aaliyah's image, right? Is that she, you know, she is not one of the bad girls. She's not Little Kim. She is, she is the church girl. She is good. Um, Mm. Yeah. um, One of the things, um, what date was that tribute published? November 2001. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think one of the things that I, um, I found, difficult to sort of convey or reconstruct in my own mind was how the complete weirdness for people who were bereft of Alia that um so she's killed in August 2001 and then September 2001 happens and there are all these really uncomfortable instances in the memorializing of people saying I'm very sad about Alia essentially saying I'm very sad about Alia it seems silly given that 9-11 9-11 has happened but I'm still sad about her and I think I think to some extent there were lots of reasons why her image was slightly sort of suppressed and disappeared through this period partly the R. Kelly stuff partly the fact that um, licensing issues meant her music wasn't available on streaming for a very long time um but also partly the fact that she was killed and then there, then this absolute catastrophe happened. And I think a lot of people didn't really know how to do their memorialising of Aaliyah alongside this incredible catastrophe. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the comparison of her to Princess Diana, I think, is really astute about the sort of place she held in American culture. The singer Jill Scott said, what I loved the most about her was that she maintained her privacy. You didn't see her unless she wanted you to see her. I really wanted to ask her about that. She was a beautiful woman. Oh, right. Isn't that an, I mean, it's so exactly a description of how her image worked. I think one of the things I write about in the book is that she represented herself as kind of veiled so her hair would be covering her face she'd be wearing the eye patch she'd have a baseball cap on there would always be something in between you and her and so she would always seem like she was kind of drawing you in but there's a barrier there's a point at which you stop which is very seductive right it's a very kind of classic flirt technique (laughs) very Mm -hmm. good thing to use as a performer but I think it also does speak to the fact that she was someone who I think because of her incredibly awful traumatic experiences of abuse and the fact that the abuse she'd been through would have been turned against her image. Like there was not a a sympathetic model for having been the teenage bride of R. Kelly. It would not have been something that would have, it would have been seen as ruinous of her image. Um, I think if I found a really old... Um, MTV news report about the discovery of the marriage license when that was published in Vibe magazine in 1998 I think it might have been I might be wrong about that but um and this news report says something like it remains to be seen whether Alia will be in trouble for presenting false ID and I was kind of like you what <laughs> like I don't I don't think that's the problem here yeah. actually yeah. um 
But no, there was not a very sympathetic model for girls who had been victimised in the way that she was victimised. And protecting her image meant not talking about her private life. It meant having a really strict shutter down on that. Mm. Um, R. Kelly was not quoted in this um, memorial to to Aaliyah, but he is referenced um, in one of one of the the quotes. Tyrese, the singer, model, actor, said um, that he was in Jamaica and had to break the news to Missy Elliott and R. Kelly. We were really torn up about the whole thing. What soothes my soul is that she was able to live out her dreams and a lot of goals while she was here. And I think the um, one of the reasons R. Kelly was not speaking about Alia at this point is because he was legally not able to. Part of the terms of the kind of breaking of the contract between Alia and him, not just in terms of the divorce, but in terms of breaking down their cre- um, creative relationship as well, was that they agreed that neither of them were going to comment on the other for, you know, forever. That's written, I think, in the legal documents that were signed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, it, um, gosh, this is hard to read, isn't it? It says a lot about the kind of double think that was involved around their relationship and around the extent to which people were both willing to romanticize it. There's that Lifetime movie from 2011 or 13, I think, which um, describes them as two creatively connected souls. Like it's sort of nauseating, not Mm. sort of. (laughs) Um, Like there was a belief in this romance Mm. but a kind of defensive rejection of the idea of any sort of sexual impropriety. People wanted to believe in the love story, but not in the sex because the sex would be abusive. So, yeah, I guess you see a bit of that in that quote. Yes, I would imagine the teen people um, creators, so, you know, the, the journalists, mm. the editors, they would have known about all of that and of course that that doesn't trickle down to the reader but uh, you know again this is all the sort of the industry background um that uh, consumers of these media are not necessarily privy to at the time no and it's a very hard thing i've had this conversation with um journalistic peers since the russell brown story was broken yeah because in that case the russell brown story was certainly an open secret i would say among people in entertainment and journalism um, and I think had been like many, many years in the making, definitely. Yes. Um, but if you don't, so I think to people in that world, it was obvious and known that this was true. And you can look back and read things that people have written and maybe see it in between the lines. There's um, Similarly, there's a very famous David Carr profile of Harvey Weinstein, Mm -hmm. which is basically him trying really hard to get to the bottom of the truth of the allegations about Harvey Weinstein, but he can't say them out loud because Mm -hmm. there are no women at this point who go on the record. There is no, you know, there is no um, legal safe way to go in on this issue for David Carr at the point he writes this feature so I kind of I went back and I read it after all the Weinstein allegations came out and I was like oh I see (laughs) like oh I I understand but if you don't have if you don't have that piece of knowledge you can't put it together and make sense of it and I think especially 
because of the time and media environment in which the evidence about what R. Kelly did to Aaliyah initially came out, it was possible as just a general member of the public to not know that there was any actual solid evidence. Vibe mm. had published the marriage certificate. It was, you know, it was on the record. But if you hadn't seen that particular issue of Vibe, then you might assume it was just insinuation. And certainly if you were someone who was a fan of R. Kelly or a fan of Aaliyah and didn't want to allow in this, you know, thing that was harmful to their reputation, you would prefer to see it as insinuation. I'm going to move on to Jennifer Aniston because uh, she has a chapter in your book. And although I don't think she was ever really, you know, a, a teen star, um, yeah. she she was written about in Teen People magazine. Mm. And there were a couple of excerpts from an article published in uh, April of 2002 that I thought were interesting in light of your book. The story is called A Cut Above, and it's an interview with her hairstylist um, who, uh, you know, created her iconic look. The stylist says that in the year 2000, um, she had longer hair with extensions. And he remarked that she liked hiding behind that long, long hair. He continued, after she got married in July 2000, we cut all her hair off into a choppy bob. There were times when she loved it and there were days when she was like, oh my God, why did I cut my hair? But she also did it for kind of a spiritual thing, just so she knew she had it in her. That's so funny. I know she said subsequently that she absolutely hated the Rachel haircut. And um, as one of many, many women who had a version of the Rachel haircut, I can say it was an absolute pain to style. It's like it's, it's not a wash and go style. You need to put in the hours with the barrel brush to make the Rachel work. Um, <laughs> I love that. One of my absolute favourite things that I found while I was researching the book was a photo shoot with Aniston from People People, not Team People, mm. where she uh, they have a whole rack of um, like um, hairdressers dummies, you know, like head models with different wigs on, yeah. and they have Aniston popping her head up in between them with the Rachel haircut. I think and it's I've so seen funny. that. Yeah. yeah, it's such a great picture, yeah. and it's such a good riff on just like how how she and especially her hair had kind of become an archetype yes. for what women were, and that yeah, I think it's so that haircut just meant so much, didn't it? It was so funny, and it really, I think regardless of whether the kind of she did it to prove she had it in her thing is necessarily true um I do think for lots of women having the Rachel haircut was kind of emblematic of modeling yourself or paying some kind of tribute to the Rachel character who is like she's this you know she's the girl you want to be right she's sexy she's funny the girls like her the boys like her but also, I think really critically, and this is kind of what the chapter is about, she runs away from having the nice, safe, rich marriage to find out who she is and to have a career and, you know, eventually to, quote unquote, have it all because she ends up with, you know, the man, the baby and the career in fashion that she's always wanted. And she's such a, I think more than any of the other characters in Friends, she's a kind of an idealized version of who you could be which then becomes this incredible burden that Jennifer Aniston actually has to carry mm. when in gossip culture that role sort of continues to be forced on her mm. but yeah I love reading about the haircut it's great 
Sarah's chapter on Lindsay Lohan describes her precocious talent, her troubled childhood, and her youthful missteps, which were, of course, magnified by the intense scrutiny she faced in the mid-2000s. As you can imagine, Lindsay appeared on the cover of Teen People magazine and was frequently featured in Teen People. The problem was she was also frequently on the cover of People magazine because of those youthful missteps. As Teen People's entertainment director Zena Burns told me in 2020, this kind of competition between the two publications was one reason Teen People ultimately folded. Scroll through my episodes for Zena's interview. For now, back to Sarah and Lindsay in Teen People. They had this one feature, which is where they had teen people readers write into teen people in a sort of ask me anything kind mm. of a premise. And so they, the, the teenagers ask uh, questions about negative drama, rumors, gossip. Um, Lindsay says things, things like this come with the territory, but I accept them. I take it all and just get through it. I want to keep going for as long as I can. I want to be in this for the long run. It's a great position to be in, I, and I couldn't be happier. One of the, the Teen People readers uh, said, I saw your picture in a magazine. You look thin. Are you being healthy, and are you eating right? And Lindsay replied, yes, I am, and I'm starting to work out. That makes a difference. <laughs> one... one uh, one reader said, is it fun going out to clubs and parties with your mom? Are you comfortable hanging out with her? Lindsay says, yes, my mom is the coolest person ever. I like going to dinner with her and having my friends over with her. My mom's just the best and I love her to death. Um, one reader asked, what kind of influence do you think you have on young girls who watch your movies and listen to your music? And Lindsay said, I try to convey honesty and self-confidence. Just put out the right message and set a good example. People make up lies, but there's really nothing you can do about that. And she is asked about misconceptions mm -hmm. about her. So she says, uh, the biggest misconception is that I'm some girl who goes out all the time and that I don't take my job and my responsibilities seriously and that I'm late to set all the time, that I'm a diva. I'm so not that. Everyone has their moments. Everyone has a bad day. I do pretty well considering the things that are said about me. I don't want people to believe that I am who the tabloids say I am. And you describe this tension in, in Toxic, mm. in the Lindsay chapter, where she's a woman with um, enormous talent, um, precocious talent. She, and I'd forgotten about this, but she was pitched as a sort of 21st century Marilyn Monroe mm, in that yeah. she was gorgeous and compelling on screen, but also incredibly talented um, underneath yeah. it all. But that she also had the, you know, showing up late to set, not being insurable, mm. having her issues with addictions, with partying, with drugs, allegedly. Mm. Um, so I think that, you know, you see all of this in the questions that come from the teen people readers. I loved this one question at the very end uh, of that feature where teen people asked a question of Lindsay. And the question was, what do you want teens to learn from Mean Girls, the movie, which was just coming out at that time? Yeah. Lindsay said, well, I hope it's funny and entertaining, but I also hope it sends a positive message that as girls and women, we can stop being our own enemies. Oh. I love Mean Girls so much. It's so great. Another one of the things that was deeply, deeply pleasurable about working on this book was um, was rewatching Mean Girls several times. Um, and Lindsay really is absolutely brilliant, even in, I mean, um, so I watched 
every film she's been in, except for the Liz and Dick film, which I couldn't find a watchable version of. I had literally forgotten about that until right? I came across it in your book. I was like, OMG. I remember <laughs> watching a like live stream, like live someone was live blogging that yeah. on probably live journal. And I I, oh, I, I didn't wow. have cable at the time. So yeah. I didn't see the the film, but I did see the live blog and the, the reactions <laughs> I recall were not very um not very flattering. complimentary. <laughs> yeah. yeah, even in um the canyons, which is awful. The canyons <laughs> is very hard to think of a single nice thing to say about the canyons, except that it I guess the nicest thing you can say about the canyons is it would have been interesting if it had worked. <laughs> but <laughs> <it doesn't. laughs> um but it doesn't. But she's even in that, she like she's just luminous in some parts of it. It's so telling about the the sort of the problems that she was having to navigate in her career, the kinds of questions that she's been asked in that section. And I really I feel for her. I felt for her so much while I was working on this because like being a child star is incredibly stressful. Growing up in public is incredibly stressful I don't know if you've read the brilliant Jeanette McCurdy book I'm glad my mom died another one that I I, I'm on hold for at the library you are gonna you will love it it's Mm. so fantastic Mm. but she says in that that when you're a child star people don't want to see you grow up and when you do anything that looks like growing up they throw it back against you and hold it against you and this happens to Lindsay so there are these things that are you know basically pretty minor being a teenager forms of acting out that because she is lovely button nose Lindsay Lohan they become escalated and escalated in the public eye but then that becomes a kind of pressure on her that I think that pressure comes out in more acting out so she's in I think from the outside a really difficult feedback loop to break where Mm. she's being judged she responds to that judgment by you know going out and partying and then that becomes more of the same and because her reputation is then filtered through the tabloids it does start to affect her ability to work and there's a degree to which you know it's true to a certain extent is true that she was like difficult to work with in some ways and would be late and did cause problems on set but one of that I think if she hadn't been dealing with the incredible pressure caused by the coverage of this stuff I think probably those issues would have been maybe less extreme than they were focus on her body is really interesting as well another thing that is really hard about being a child star especially a female child star is obviously your body's going to change and in Lindsay Lohan's case because of the time that this was happening, the focus on her changing body was, you know, really lascivious, really unpleasant and really like quite uncomfortable to look back on a lot of the commentary about her breasts. Like, my God, like, please stop everybody talking about this 17 year old girl's breasts. It's horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess from the perspective of, again, I think if you look at it from the perspective of the young women, young girls who are fans of hers and who are looking at her, the kinds of bodies you see and the bodies you identify with can be a really important part of how you relate to your own body as well. And so there is a 
degree to which it's kind of reasonable for the fans to have questions about that stuff and to want to know whether whether she was healthy, which we know now because of things she said about having bulimia. She actually wasn't. Yes, and, and perhaps that particular girl who asked the question about Lindsay's weight had her own context uh, that she was wrestling with at the time and, right. and 100%. perhaps wanted to reach out to the magazine and and maybe yeah. receive some affirmation for herself. We just don't know. Maybe I'll track her down and I'll ask her. <laughs> Sarah's chapter on China, The Wrestler, foreshadows the presidency of Donald Trump since he aligned himself with the world wrestling entertainment brand, WWE, in the years before he entered politics. In our full episode, you'll hear Sarah explain how he honed his persona as a public speaker through this association. In this excerpt, you'll hear Sarah's thoughts on a topic that she's been thinking about and writing about for some time. I know that in the past that you have written about uh, gender identity, mm. feminism, trans women in such a way that, that I think it's safe to say has generated some controversy online. I am curious to know how your perspective on these matters informed uh, any of the writing in the book, if at all. You certainly talk in the China chapter about the uh, the, the gender bending uh, that was an aspect of her career. Yeah, and also um, the incredibly unpleasant transphobia that was included in some of the China storylines. So there's a really nasty storyline both racist and sexist and transphobic storyline where she was in a kayfabe relationship with a black wrestler called mark henry whose ring name was sexual chocolate we're already off to an incredibly bad start mm. um the culmination of this storyline is he's meant to be um in love with and pursuing china and she tricks him into a threesome with her friend sammy and the final punchline is it turns out oh sammy is in the words of the um, of WW at the time, Sammy is a transsexual, and it all culminates with Mark Henry, I think, vomiting in a bin. And it's just like it's so cruel and nasty, and just you know tells you um, you know an awful lot about the you know number one the unpleasantness of WWE in general. But number number two, the yeah, just like the widespread cultural acceptance of cruelty to trans people for being trans in this period. And the period I'm writing about, um, I think, does predate the, um, you know, sort of the explosion of the trans rights movement. So I think... Um, if I'm remembering correctly, I think 2016 is when Vern Cox does the Time magazine cover, which is a really, which is the, is this the next civil rights movement cover, mm. um, which I think is a real signal moment in terms of coverage for trans rights. So I think the period I'm writing about, it's not just that it predates um, some of the awareness and acceptance, but it also predates some of the ideas that are really that have become quite universally acknowledged. So the idea of a gender identity, quote, like, quote, unquote, um, isn't really widely accepted in this period. And I think if you kind of went back to talk to a past version of you and me from in this period and mentioned gender identity, we would be a bit like, what is one of those? This isn't, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand this. Um, so so yeah, um, and then there are like a couple of like there are people I write about in the book who have transitioned subsequently, and one of the rules I tried to keep to in the book was um, 
to refer to things and people by the name they had in the people that I was writing in the period that I was writing about which does mean that there are a couple of times when I do what somebody might consider to be dead naming and it's not done with any malice it's just like for example um Elliot Page as Ellen Page was used as a kind of comparison point to Lindsay Lohan at the time like the there are early interviews with Page where they're like look at this wonderful young woman who is the complete opposite of horrible messy car crash Lindsay Lohan and there's no way to to talk about that and how it relates to Lindsay's treatment if you don't talk about it as Paige being a young woman at that time. So whenever I've done that, I've kind of acknowledged that there have been subsequent changes to people's identity and tried to be respectful of it in that way. Um, but yeah, I think in some ways it was kind of, um, it was interesting to look at a period when, um, misogyny you know misogyny in this book is kind of straight up misogyny actually it's like there is a lot of there is a quite frank attitude that these women are being hated for being women and for failing at femininity as women in certain ways and I think one of the unintended consequences of the um like broader adoption of talking about gender identity rather than sex is that it can obscure some of those relations and it can obscure the fact that, you know, women are being victimized as women for being female. And so, yeah, it was interesting, I suppose, to look at a, um, a hearty era of old fashioned misogyny <laughs> was probably be the way that I would put it. Yeah, old-fashioned misogyny taking place in um, a very quickly changing media mm. and um, sort of social um, climate. Uh, yeah. I wonder if you do follow up on on this book, um, perhaps those conversations will emerge uh, more in the forefront. I think, as you say, yes, we didn't really have some of this language and this this vocabulary and, and these yeah, ways of thinking about of, identity yeah. uh, 20 years ago that, that we right. have. Now. There's loads of stuff that um that we didn't have the um the sort of like terms and concepts that have come into being mm -hmm. over the course of the period I write about so you know we didn't have the word revenge porn until sort of 2007 2008 mm -hmm. we didn't really talk about grooming that's the concept that moved out of sort of um like child protection literature into the mainstream during mm. this period and now has this sort of horrifying afterlife being weaponized by QAnon types which yes. is a very strange evolution and yes. you know a bit of a shame given it's such a useful concept to have yeah. um we didn't have slut shaming as a concept we had slut shaming as a thing but not mm. as a concept that you mm. could talk about mm -hmm. there wasn't uh, you know we didn't talk about body shaming either no, we no. you know all of these things have been, you know, to a large extent developed and popularized by grassroots feminism, largely online feminism. And I think it's been incredibly useful in terms of identifying and naming forms of harm that women experience. Mm. Mm. Thanks again to Sarah for this wonderful interview and to Stephanie at Canadian Manda Group in Toronto for providing me with an advance review copy of Toxic. Please buy Sarah's book online or at your local bookseller. Find more information in the notes for this episode and have a listen to our full conversation on your favorite podcast app. 
I'm Anna Soper. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Teen People Pod. Thank you for listening to Teen People. See you next time. Thank you.